Okay, everybody back in, I think. So, uh, there's a lot more that we could say about Exodus chapter 3, but the main point that I want to make about it is that we, we kind of see brought together here what we're going to see in other places as well. Maybe not in quite the fullness we have in Exodus 3, but this is, this is God, as I said earlier, kind of bridging that gap. He's the transcendent God, but he's also the imminent God. He's the God who comes and speaks directly to, to his people. In this case, he speaks directly to Moses, and yet He's obviously not simply what we think of as an angel because he's given divine names. He identifies himself as the God of the patriarchs and he's connected with Yahweh himself. So this is not just what we think of as an angel, a created messenger, but this is a special kind of messenger. But let's look at some other examples of that. Let's first of all go back to the very first time this happens. This is in Genesis chapter 16. I love this story. I love this particular appearance, this first appearance of the Malach Yahweh, the messenger of the Lord, primarily because of the person to whom he appears. Genesis 16 is the story of, of Hagar. And you remember how Hagar kind of fits into the, the big story, right? You have the promise given to Abram and Sarai, Abram, Abraham and Sarah, that they are to have this promised son. And they get impatient, right? So they decide they're going to take matters into their own hands or they're going to take matters into, into their own bed, I suppose we could say. And so they decide that they're going to do what was relatively common back then, that was, which was legal. So you could have a, a servant, a female servant, who would bear a child, and this child would be considered to be kind of the adopted child of, of, of the wife. So that was what the plan, the plan was. Because, of course, God was taking too long. So this, was, this is their attempt to kind of speed up the process. You know, God made his promise, but he's lagging behind, and so we're going we're gonna to expedite matters by doing this with, with Hagar. And then what happens, lest we feel too sorry for Hagar, what happens when Hagar becomes pregnant? She kind of becomes uppity, right? Yeah, she kind of, kind of full, full of herself. And so then, uh, for you wives in the room, you could probably answer this question a little bit better, but chances are the situation between Hagar and Sarah would have been... <laughs> Stacy makes a, <laughs> the claw, <laughs> the claw. For, yeah, probably not comfortable anymore. A little, little, little tension there. Uh, even though this, even though whose idea was the whole Hagar thing? It was Sarah's. Sarah's idea. So you kind of put yourself in this situation. This is like this is one of these many, many family problems of the patriarchs, where you can kind of easily see how things how you would have reacted in a, in a similar situation. So Hagar runs away. She goes into the wilderness, and we'll pick it up with Genesis 16, verse uh, 7. So the messenger of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, Sarah's, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Isn't it fascinating, by the way, how many times God begins a conversation with a question? Have you noticed that? I mean, it's already in Genesis 3, right? 
What does he say to Adam? Where are you? He talks to Jonah, same thing. He talks to Cain. He asks him a question. Why, why are you angry? It, I, I find in that particular divine approach the sense in which God is wanting to engage in conversation. He's not simply there to, to speak some sort of harsh word or even to speak a, a warning, but he's there to engage. He's trying to pull them in with these, with these questions. So we have a question here. Where you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And then the messenger of the Lord said to her, return, submit yourself to her authority, so on and so forth. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord said to her, notice the language, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall become too many to count. He doesn't say God, he doesn't say the Lord, he says that I will do this. And then he goes on to describe how she's with child, going to have a very son, name him Ishmael, so on and so forth. Verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. She called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are a God who sees Elroy, a seeing God, the God who sees. You're Elroy. And then she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? This is pretty common when you have any, any kind of divine encounter like this and the people afterward find that their heart is still beating and their lungs are still breathing. They're shocked because they have seen God and yet they're alive. Because when you see God, you're not supposed to be able to talk about it afterward, right? That's it. To see God, to see him in all his glory is to, is to be destroyed. We have this repeatedly in the lives of Old Testament people. And Hagar is one of those. Notice the same thing in Exodus 3 is happening here in Genesis 16. You have the messenger appearing, but the messenger does not come with simply a message from God, but the messenger speaks as God. And Hagar realizes this, right? She says, you are, she called the name of the Yahweh, the name of the Lord who spoke to her, she called him El Roy. So she is collapsing the messenger and God and Yahweh all into one. And this isn't the only time we saw it. In Exodus 3, we'll see some other cases. What I'm, what I'm suggesting is that we already see within the Old Testament what is going to be made explicit in the New Testament. So we were talking beforehand about, about this how, this, how this works. So put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. Are you a polytheist or are you a monotheist? Well, of course, you're, you're, a poly, you're a monotheist, right? You believe there's only one God, okay? The confession of the, of the Jew, right? The Shema, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Judaism, amongst all the other faiths of the ancient world, is the only one that's monotheistic. So how, if you have a monotheistic faith, strictly monotheistic faith, no room for any other gods, how, for instance, could Thomas point to Jesus and say, my Lord and my God? How could any of the early believers point to Jesus and refer to him as, as God without 
breaking their monotheism. I mean, if monotheism was, was, was everything for them, right? The fundamental confession is that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and yet they're pointing to this flesh and blood man and saying, you are God. How could they do that? I mean, was this like a, a huge, massive theological leap for them? No, it wasn't. Because what you see, well, you see it already in the Old Testament, what you see around the first century, in the first couple centuries leading up to the time of Christ, what you see is understanding that within monotheism there is this complexity. Yes, there's one God. No doubt about that. Never any question about that among the Jews. There's one God. And yet, what is this one God like? Is he kind of just really kind of this simplistic one God, kind of in a Unitarian sort of way? Or is there, or is there something else kind of going on here? And the Jews, by and large, said, there's something else going on here. Because we have this transcendent one God who also comes in these various ways and speaks to his people. He appears to his people. Now, what this came to be called was the two powers in heaven. The two powers in heaven is based upon a vision that Daniel sees. Daniel sees this vision of the Son of Man who is coming to receive a kingdom from the Ancient of Days. All right? So you the Ancient of Days, that's Yahweh, that's God. But you have a Son of Man coming, and he's receiving a kingdom, and it says that not a throne, but thrones, in the plural, thrones were set up. So you have the Ancient of Days, and you have this Son of Man who's receiving this kingdom. And these thrones indicate that there's not just one heavenly divine throne for the one God, but there's actually two thrones. Therefore, the Jews begin to talk about two powers in heaven, with the second power being the one who's occupying this second throne in the heavens. And this was very widespread, a very widespread understanding by the time of Christ. You have two powers in heaven. Now what happened is that when, when the Christians began to speak in this sort of way, to describe who the person of Christ was, to describe his relationship with God the Father, by the time you get to the second century, the two powers in heaven was declared to be heretical. So you see what was going on here. You've got this ongoing tension because Christianity begins as basically nothing more than a sect of Judaism. That's, that's how it starts out. It's just this kind of weird group of Christians who think that this guy named Jesus was, was the Messiah. That's the way it starts out. It's just a sect within Judaism. And then it begins to grow and to grow. And you, you, you can imagine there's a lot of give and take, a lot of argument, a lot of debate amongst the, the followers of Jesus and their, their fellow Jews. And they begin to spread, and then you get, you get Paul, who's causing all kinds of problems, because Paul is traveling all over the Roman world, and he's speaking to synagogues, and he's proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, has been raised from the dead, and he is the Messiah. And so you can see how the Jews would begin to, to talk about Jesus as the Messiah by using this language of the two powers in heaven, as well as other traditions. And so the, those who rejected Jesus as the Messiah would begin to distance themselves from this idea of there being two powers in heaven. Till finally, when you get into the second century, you have this declared to be a heretical teaching. That which, was, that which once was orthodox is now not just heterodox, but, but heresy. Because it's been taken by the Christians as an explanation of the connection between the Father and, and the Son. Well, how could, how could we look at this, this, this two powers in heaven from, 
a deeper, more ancient Old Testament perspective? Well, by seeing how all of this is, all this actually has its roots back in Genesis. It begins with Genesis 16. And it continues with Exodus 3 and other places where you, you have this obvious second way that God is present with his people, this second way that he's, that he's speaking. You can call it a messenger, you can call it a power, you can call it other things, but there's obvious within monotheism this complexity that, yeah, eventually we become to call the, the Trinity, but it's already there in the minds of the Old Testament people as well. Am I making sense? Yes. Yes, heretical within within the Jews. Yes, not the, not the Christians. No. Well, the, the early Christians were were they were trying to find ways of speaking about who the Trinity is. It, the exact language, for instance, we have in the Nicene Creed, where the Son is homoousios of one essence with the Father. That was a later development, because what you see in the first three or four centuries of the church is not a difference in what they're teaching, but just they're trying to find the exact, the best exact language to use when talking about the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity. But already in Matthew, of course, you got a reference to baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they're used to the language of the Father, they're used to the language of the Son, they're used to the language of the Spirit, but over time, usually in response to heresies, the church had to refine its language to find the exact terminology by which to communicate the connection between the persons of, of the Trinity. So you have a development of the, of the language that's used to confess this truth that had, was there from, from the New Testament already. Yes, sir? So this is now just comparison. Yeah. So the question was, how did, they, how did the Jews who, who rejected the two powers, how did they reconcile this with what had once been, what's been taught? By means of a reinterpretation which is the way that often they responded to texts that were now claimed by Christians, which formerly they had maybe held to be a, a text about the Messiah. Very often what happened, these, these would be reinterpreted. So for instance, the, the, the servant text in Isaiah, the servant of the Lord doing this, servant of the Lord doing that, which in some Jewish interpretations, early Jewish interpretations were understood to be about the Messiah, now would be would be reinterpreted to apply to the whole nation of Israel. So basically it's through a process of reinterpretation. Yes? Yeah, so who, which, what kind of Jews basically rejected the two powers in heaven? Yeah. Well, back then we didn't have the distinctions we have today. Of course, we have Reformed Jews, Orthodox Jews, Conservative Jews, Hasidic Jews, all kinds of different Jews. There, was some, there were certainly differences within Judaism that existed in the first and second century. I mean, we have these already in the New Testament, right? We've got Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, you have the Zealots. You kind of have what, what's referred to as the, uh, uh, the people of the land, the Amha'adits, which were kind of the hoi polloi we were talking about earlier, <laughs> just kind of like the, you know, the, the unwashed masses, just the typical people. They refer to the Amha'arits, the people of the land. So you got, you got differences within Judaism. But what happened was after the destruction of the temple in 70, Romans destroyed the temple. Well, when the temple's gone, who's gone? The Sadducees. The Sadducees were connected with the temple. So they basically just fade from history. What emerges over the course of the next 
decades or, or maybe century, is a dominant form of Judaism. That is probably most influenced by what we would call the, the Pharisees, the Pharisaic tradition. So you, what you have in the, in the emerging second century and then third century onward is, is much more of kind of a, of a mainstream one kind of, of Judaism. And that would have been the one that rejected the two powers in heaven. By the way, that becomes then the, uh, the, the womb out of which modern Judaism was born. So modern Judaism has much more in common kind of with second, third century A.D., Judaism than it does the Old Testament. And in some ways, people will fall. It's almost a new religion because it's, it's, I mean, they still are studying the same scriptures, uh, but without the temple and without the priesthood and all of that that formed so much of what Judaism was, it's almost like you have a, uh, a reinventing of what Judaism was after the temple. So which branches of Judaism are still waiting for the Messiah? Yes, there are some Jews that are waiting for the Messiah. Uh, they typically are the more conservative types. Yeah, so the Orthodox, conservative. I, I studied with Reformed Jews at, at Hebrew Union College where there is no longer a, a Messianic expectation. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they would. I, I remember reading in one of their articles basically that uh, the Messiah has come and he is you. In other words, you are responsible What's that? The nation of Israel. Yeah, yeah, the nation of Israel, kind of the people of God. The, they're the ones who are to bring justice to the nation. They're to be a light to the world. They're to be the, the change. And so it's, this is more this reinterpretation, right? It's no longer an individual, the anointed person, individual, but it's the whole nation is understood in this messianic sort of, sort of way. Yeah. Uh, anything else? Along these lines, before we move on. Yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah, Pharisaical in modern day English is like, yeah, it's not good. And that's it's, this is a great example of how things change because if you're in the first century and you're a mother, well, mamas want their kids to grow up and be Pharisees, pretty much, because the Pharisees were, when you, when you're, when you hear Pharisee and you're a Jew in the first century, you're you hear, oh, man, those, those are the good guys, right? We hear bad guys. Those are the good guys because they are the ones who exemplary piety. So I want to offend anyone here. Let me think how to put this. So like, a, you, can you think of, think of a person in not even your church, but a church, all right, who's kind of like the pillar, right? People point to this person, man or woman, and say, you know, this person is, the, is, is very pious, very faithful. I mean, they're always studying the scriptures. If you have a Bible question, you, you ask them. Anytime the church doors are open, that's where they are. You know, everyone's like, just, it's, a, it's a great religious example. Well, for a lot of the Jews, that would have been the Pharisee. That's who they were. I mean, they went above and beyond to lead a life of, of piety. Their main goal was to kind of take all of the very strict requirements that, that applied to the temple priesthood and to enact those in their own home so that their home became like the altar and their life became like the priestly life. So it wasn't enough for just for them to kind of be, you know, following the, the typical laws. They wanted to follow even more. So they were viewed not in a negative sort of way, but in a very positive sort of way. 
And of course, today it's completely opposite, at least in Christian churches, because we see this clash always between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus calls them hypocrites, and so pharisaical in our minds means hypocritical. But for as far as their influence on post-70 Judaism, so after the temple is destroyed, you got to figure out what to do. You have no temple. You have no priesthood. You have no way to sacrifice. And there for a while, after one of the Jewish rebellions, you are forbidden even to enter the city of Jerusalem. Well, there goes the heart of your faith. What are you going to, you, you got to come up with a new way of living as a Jew. And the Pharisees were like, oh, we, we got the answer to that. I mean, we, we know exactly what you're supposed to do. We don't need to sacrifice animals. You study the sacrificial laws, and that's the equivalent. You don't need to go to some temple. You go to synagogue, and you study the word. The word, the word, the word became, became everything. And so they were the ones who were primarily responsible for reshaping and really, in some ways, saving Judaism after the temple was destroyed. Okay, uh, see where we're going to go from here. Oh, yeah, you got to look at Exodus. So we're talking about the messenger of the Lord. There's a whole lot we could look at here, but there's one passage that we definitely do not want to bypass because this one becomes hugely significant for us understanding exactly who this is. So the book of Exodus chapter 23, this is after the giving of the Ten Commandments. This is before the, the whole debacle with the golden calf. This is kind of the in-between phase. And uh, God is talking to, to Moses, to Israel through Moses. And in Exodus 23, 20, 20 and following, he tells them about this messenger he's going to send to be with them. He says, behold... I'm going to send a messenger before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. I can never hear that verse, by the way, without thinking of John 14. Behold, I go and prepare a place for you. Yeah. In this case, he's going he's to be the one who's going to guard them and usher them, lead them to the land flowing with milk and honey. He says, be on your guard before him and obey his voice. That would be listen to his voice. Another little Hebrew thing here. Anytime you see the word obey, in Hebrew it's listen to the voice of. Because Hebrew has no word for obey. What we translate as obey is listen to the voice of. So if I say listen to me, that's me asking you to let my words go into your ears and then let them influence you. So there's no, like, obey word. It's just listen let me have your ears. That's what God always wants. He wants your ears. So uh, listen to his voice, obey his voice. Don't be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression. That is to say, if he, has this, he has the power of absolution. He has the power of forgiving. And then, verse 21, at the very end, this is what I wanted to point you toward. Because what is in him? My name. That's like a bomb, bombshell moment there, because for God to put his name into someone is for him to put himself, his essence, who he is into, into someone. This is not like him, this is not like God taking a, a Sharpie and writing his name on the outside of something. <laughs> this, because in the, in, the, in the biblical mindset, a name is the equivalent of 
what a person is. It's not just like something, a label you put on someone. Names are hugely significant because they could have sort of encapsulate everything that this person is. So for God to put his name into this messenger is for him to say, listen, he is I and, and I am he. We are, we are joined in an intimate sort of way because I have put everything that I am, my power, my, my, my reputation, my glory, my authority, everything that the name represents is in this messenger. So to use Christian language, this would be like the father saying, listen to my son, obey his voice, because he is the only begotten of me. He is of one essence with me. My name is in him. We are, we are one. So this is the Old Testament way of using this kind of Trinitarian language. My name is in him. And then he goes on to talk about how he's going to uh, be an enemy to your enemies and he's going to go before you into, into the land. But the point is, the point of this particular, particular uh, section is that God has sent his son, messenger, equipped him with full divine authority to bring about good for his people. He's going to bring them into the promised land. Let's look at one more. We're going to go backwards again. Go to Genesis 48. And let's see, where do we want to start here? Let's get the context. So Genesis 48, uh, if you remember kind of the latter half of Genesis, the way this works, so Joseph is sold by his brothers into Egypt, right? And eventually his brothers go down there because of the famine. All Israel ends up finally reuniting there in the land of Egypt, okay? By this time, uh, Jacob is an old guy, and he's gone through a lot. He's not quite the heel that he used to be. <laughs> I think age kind of did him some, some good in that respect. But he's getting close to, to death. And his son Joseph, of course, they've been reunited, and Joseph has two sons. And so Jacob's getting ready to bless these, these two sons. But remember what he does? He does this number. He crosses his arms. So he doesn't bless. He doesn't give the, the primary blessing to the firstborn, but to the secondborn, which is the way that God consistently works throughout the Scriptures. He's always blessing not the older, but the younger. So that's kind of what's going on here. It's not the main point, but I just want to kind of set the stage because verse 14 is where we have this, this cross-stretching of the hands. And then, verse 15, notice what happens here. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers walked, Abraham and Isaac, the God who's been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel the Moloch, who has redeemed me from all evil. So may this God who did this, and may this God who did that, and may this messenger who did this, and as you wrap it all up, may he bless the lads. There's a very fine point of Hebrew grammar that's extremely significant here, because the verb for bless is in the singular. Who we just talk about? We talked about the God before whom he walked. We talked about the God who was his shepherd. We talked about the messenger who redeemed him. Therefore, you, you should have at least two subjects, right? 
Maybe three. You got three named. You got God, God, messenger. And yet, so the, the, the rules of grammar would specify that if you have more than one subject, if you got a plural subject, you can have a plural verb. Plural subject, plural verb. But yet here, what do you have? You have God, God, messenger. You get down to bless, and you have a singular verb, which means that the ones you just talked about are not a plurality, but a singularity. So God, God, messenger is all the same person. Therefore, when we think about this messenger, he himself is God. He's distinguished from God, and yet he is God. And he is the one who's called upon here by Jacob to bless his two grandsons. This, I think, is one of the clenching arguments for understanding exactly who this is. This is the messenger who is sent by God, who is also God. He's also sent by Yahweh. He's also Yahweh. Now, in New Testament language, there's no other way to, to talk about this other than this is the Father and this is the Son. And the main point is that, as I said earlier, Jesus is not, as it were, waiting in heaven to finally come down in his incarnation. He's already coming down. He's already coming down to be present among his people in this way as a messenger, which is, which is when, you, when you think about Christ, which is perfect, right? What does he do when he comes down? He is the one who speaks the Father's words, right? He is the, he's not just the word made flesh, but he's also the word speaker, the word teacher. He's always saying that which God has given him to say. So he is the messenger of the Father, the one who comes with this life-giving message from, from God. Okay, uh, any questions about, at all about the, the, the angel of the Lord, the Moloch, messenger of the Lord, stuff that we've been looking at? Yes? Uh, earlier you were using Yahweh and Elohim. Mm-hmm. Um, explain. explain those? Sure. Yeah, so in Hebrew, Elohim, Elohim can be either El or Elohim. Elohim is technically plural, but it's often used in reference to the one, to the one God. So El, Elohim, is, is kind of the equivalent of our English God, right? Now, when I say God, that's not a name. That's just a, like a title, right? Yeah. So it's not a specific name. So if I say someone believes in God, the follow-up question should be, which God? <laughs> yeah. what, what's, what's your God's name that you're talking about? So it's a generic, Elohim is a generic term for a deity, we might say. Yahweh is the personal name that God gives to himself in the Old Testament. And we see this actually in Exodus chapter 3, in the ongoing conversation that Moses has with, with him. Yahweh basically, by the way, Yahweh does not mean I am. Because Yahweh is, is based upon the third person singular of the Hebrew verb hayah. So we're, when we say Yahweh, we're saying he is. So God says to us, I am who I am. And we say back, Yahweh. In other words, he is who he is. See this way this works? So Yahweh is in a sense a confession. God says, I am who I am. And we say, you're right. He is who he is. That's what Yahweh means. So when he, get, when he gives his name, he's basically saying, uh, I am the existing one, right? I am the one who is present with you. I am the, this, the, the personal, this is my personal name that I've given to you. To, uh, uh, to call upon me. 
Now today, Jews won't pronounce that name. Uh, it's considered to be too holy, but there's no evidence whatsoever in the Old Testament that it was not pronounced. Uh, just kind of a, a pious practice today among Jews. And so instead of saying, saying son of Yahweh, they will say Adonai, which just means Lord. They kind of substitute that out. That explain it well enough? Okay, good. Any other questions? All right. I actually want to go back even farther to, let me check my time, go back even farther to uh, the beginning. Uh, let's go to chapter 1 of Genesis. So we've been talking about how, how God was present, uh, how Christ was, was present among his people well before his incarnation. And what I'd like to, to focus on just for a couple minutes here is what it means for him to be in the, for, for God to create in the image of God, for God to create humanity in the image of God. I, just want to, I know that Adam, wasn't that Adam's topic last time? Was that Adam's topic last year, image of God? You remember? That's good. What did Adam say? <laughs> Come on, man, that was a year ago, right? <laughs> well, good, because if I contradict Adam, then none of you will realize it. That's good, that's good. I'm safe. I'm sure that I won't. Adam and I, I think, are pretty much on the same page when it comes to most things. Really what I want to focus in on is not the whole big question of what it means to what it means to be in the image of God. I just want to reflect just a minute upon the connection that this has with the Son. That's, that's the main thing that I want us to, to draw on here. Because here's what I'd argue. I'll, I'll tell you ahead of time where I'm going with this. I think that for God to make man and woman in his own image is a prophecy of the incarnation. That is to say, when God made Adam and Eve in his own image, that itself was pointing ahead. It was prophetic of what would happen inside Mary's womb when God took on our flesh and blood. Okay? So we'll just briefly take a look at this. So Genesis 1, 26 is the big passage here. Someone wants to talk about the image of God. God is saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, so we have the plural there, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over the creeping things that creep on the earth. And God created man in his own image. Man, there would be Adam, which is kind of the general word for humanity. My translation is man, but it's, we could say God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, and then we have specified male and female. He created them. So man and woman equally created in the, the image of God. Okay, so, well, what does, that, what does that mean? Well, I think it can mean a lot of things, right? There's a whole long list of things that it can mean. It can mean that man and woman are to be the co-regents of God on earth. That is to say, they are, the, they are to reflect the rule of God on earth. They are to be God's God's king and queen in creation to reflect him and to rule, as it says here, to rule over the creatures who are on earth. That's one of the things it can mean. I think it also, as I mentioned, is, is a, a hint of what is, what is to come. Because if you turn to the New Testament, just for instance to the book of Colossians, there's a lot of passages that we could look at, but just turn to Colossians chapter 1. See what we find. 
You don't get very far into Colossians before you come upon this verse. This is verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1. He, talking about the Son, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, for the thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And it goes on. And there's a lot of other passages in the New Testament that speak in this same sort of way. They call Christ the image. Image in Greek is icon. He's the icon of, of God, or icon of the Father. Put all this together for me, though. Adam and Eve are created in the image of God, in his likeness, and then you get to the New Testament, and you have Christ called the image, the icon of God, or the icon of the Father. How does all this fit together? How does that enhance our understanding of what it means to speak of humanity being created in the image and likeness of God? Well, if Christ, it, it, let me put it this way. Is Christ... Created in the image of God? Let me ask you that question. No. No. Okay. No. For, for lots of reasons, right? What's, what's the big word I said that was wrong? <laughs> Nick, you're doing a great job, by the way. Just, if you would have said, yeah, I would have. We need, we need to have a series of sermons on, the, on uh, Christology. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So, as the Creed says, right? Begotten, not made. Yeah huge difference there, right? So he is, we're not Aryan Christians. <laughs> he's begotten, not made. So he's not, not created, not, not made. So certainly he's, he's not that, but to ask that question a little differently, could we say that he is, that Christ is in the image of God? Does the Bible ever talk that way? It actually doesn't. It doesn't talk about he is in the image of God. It calls him what? The image. The image. Yeah. But what does it say of us? We are created in the image of God. It's a big difference. Christ is the icon of the Father. He is the image of the Father. He's the one who images forth who God is. So when you see him, you are seeing the Father. And then we're created in his image, which is to say we are created in Christ. He is the image of God. We are created in him, which fits perfectly with what Colossians just said, right? For by him all things were created. Or you could say, in him all things were created. So humanity is created in the image of the Son of God, who is the image of the Father. So when you begin to read the Old Testament in light of the New, and the New in light of the Old, and you put all this together, you see that what's happening in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is we already have here this hint, this prophecy of what is going to take place. God creates humanity to be like him in his image in order that when you see Adam and Eve created, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas because you see that, oh, if, if God makes humanity in his image, then he must like that image. And it turns out he does because one of these days he's actually going to assume that humanity himself. So the beauty of reading things like this, Old Testament light of new, new in light of old, is you already see, like, there's, you know, this, this hint of Bethlehem already in Genesis chapter 1. 
God is already, he's already laying the foundation for what he's, going to, what he's going to do later on. So when Christ takes on our humanity, when he becomes incarnate, he is, as it were, fulfilling Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 is coming full circle because in that, in that manger in Bethlehem is, is God, the very God who shows us in Genesis 1 that he loves humanity. They image him, and now he assumes that image himself. In one of his, uh, probably his most well-known work, St. Athanasius, his well-known work called On the Incarnation, St. Athanasius uh, uses this illustration to talk about the image of God. He says that it's kind of like a, if, you have, if you have an artist who once did this portrait of a person, but over time it, it, the painting kind of got messed up, you know, it got, it got uh, covered with, with, uh, with filth and, you know, scratched in places, and uh, just, the portrait is just not what it used to be. Well, what's the artist going to do? St. Athanasius says, well, what he's going to do, he's not going to, like, scrap it all together. What he's going to do, he's going to get the, the one that the portrait was originally painted of, and he's going to get him to sit again, and then he's going to take the image, and he's going to, he's going to repaint it by looking at the original. And he said that's kind of what happens in the incarnation. So God the Son is the one who is, who is the, the reality, the one who is being painted and then we are the image. And so Christ comes in order that God the Father might touch us up, more than that, to, to repaint us so that we reflect this image, so that we are Im- imaging, mirroring who, who Christ is. We all on the same page with that? Any questions? You guys are easy. Okay. Let's talk. Oh, good. Got a question. Go. Go for it. Yeah, it's a good question. So how, do, how does our physicality, our, our human nature, how does that fit into what it means to be the image of God? I think it is, I mean, I would stress that it is an essential part of being in the image of God in light of the incarnation. See what I mean? So you could, you could kind of say that Maybe not even kind of, maybe you could, you could fully say that what it means to be created in the image of likeness of God did not, really be, did not really come with full clarity until the incarnation. Because when, when God took on our human nature, when the image of God took on our nature, I think, I would argue, it's then that we fully understand what it means to be in the image of God. Because I don't think the incarnation was, was plan B. I don't think that it was like, God was like, Humanity screwed up, Genesis 3, now we've got to do something. We're going we're to go ahead and, and, you know, plan for you to take on their flesh and blood. And because of that, I think it's, it's, in, it's when the image takes on our humanity and we see him, we're like, ah. So that's what it truly means to be in the image of God. So I think the physicality is, is an essential part of what it means for us to, to be that way. And as far as like, you know, when, when we die and they're in our, our soul or spirit or whatever you call it, you know, it goes to be with Christ. Yeah, I mean, we, we still remain in the image of God. And yet that, it's, it's always important to, this is kind of a separate question, but it's a, it's a uh, 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 soapbox that I like to step on occasion. <laughs> it's always important to remember that when that happens, when, when we die, 
in between when we die and we're resurrected, that is an unnatural state for us. That is to say, that is not the way that God intended it to be. Because we are intended to exist the way you're seeing us now, except perfectly, you know, with, without any problems with our bodies and without any sin or anything. So that in that in-between phase between death and resurrection, it, it's like we're, we're waiting to be made whole again. We're not suffering or anything like that, but we're not yet the way that God wants us to be. That's only going to happen in the resurrection on the last day. And I say that because so many, well, you know this, so much of Christianity thinks that the, the goal of the Christian life is to die and go to heaven, period. As if there's no incarnation, I mean, as if there's no, there's no resurrection. The whole point is the resurrection. <laughs> that, that's, that, that is the goal. So if, we, if I die and go to heaven, then that's great. But it's kind of like I'm in a, in a great resort, but it's not my home. My home is going to be in my resurrected body on a, a new heavens and a new earth, living a perfectly physical life that God wants me to, to live. Okay, I'll step off my soapbox now. It's a, it's, it, it, it is a, it's a hugely important point because I don't know how many times I'll hear this just really messed up. People talk about, you know, someone, someone passes away and they're, they now have a perfect body or something. No, I mean, they're, they're with Christ, they're in paradise, but... The body doesn't come until the resurrection, when we will be like Christ in our glorified and perfect bodies, which the older I get, the more I look forward to. Okay, yes? Yeah, yeah, so we, we don't want to, we don't want to ever treat the image of God in Christ as if it's sort of put up as the model that we are to try and emulate. That's what you're saying, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't try to imitate Jesus because that, that, that is not the vocation that you have been called to. Uh, I mean, yes, I mean, there's, of course, be, be humble and be kind. I mean, all those are wonderful, yeah, but the, the purpose of Christ's coming is not to, as it were, give us the perfect model. It, and if we could only model that in our lives, then everything would be, would be great. No, he came precisely because that is an impossibility for us. Yeah, his purpose was not to come just to, to show us the good life to live and, you know, point the way to the straight and narrow. His point was to come and to be killed by us. When, when Christ came and, and humanity killed him, we finally were able to do that, which, been, which, which we'd wanted to do from the beginning. And if you, if you look, if you read the Old Testament with this, with this kind of in mind, I think it, it's helpful. The Old Testament is the record of people wanting to kill God but being unable to do so. So what, who do they kill instead? other people. They kill each other. Yeah. And I trace this all the way back to Cain and Abel. With whom was Cain truly angry? He was angry at God. He was, I don't think he was so much angry at his brother, except because he maybe considered him implicated in the situation, but his anger was, was vertical. But he couldn't get his hands on, on God's throat, and so he took his anger out on his brother. And I think that's pretty much the way that, that this world runs. Most people who are angry and who take it out on other people if you, kind of, if you could you know, trace it down to its core, they're angry at God. Now, what happens when Christ comes? Now you can get your hands on, on God. You can get your hands on, 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 on God's throat, and you can choke the life out of him. So it was inevitable that this would happen. It was divinely planned, but it was also inevitable. So you have this clash between God and humanity, and humanity's finally like, ah, now we can have our way. Now we can put God to, the test, to, to death. 
And then, of course, on Easter you have God rising from the dead and saying, yeah, this was, this was all the way I wanted it to be. I, w- I was, I was going to be the one who lost, like when I wrestled with Jacob. I lost in crucifixion, and I was raised in resurrection precisely in order that now I can bring you into my body, not have you model me, but bring you into my body so that you can be actually who I want you to be. Yeah. So the Gospels, <laughs> anyone who like wants to imitate Jesus, g- good luck with that. <laughs> it's not, you've seen the memes, right? Like, it'll it'll show the three pictures of, like, Christ, and then, like, Paul, and then us, like, Paul tries to imitate Christ, and it'll be like a, you know, a yacht, and then a little boat, and then we're like, I don't know, this little replica boat, something like that. The whole memes are trying to get across the point, of course, that, uh, good luck with that. That's not the point anyway. Uh, The point is not this, the New Testament is not about moralism, the Old Testament is not about moralism. It's all about leading us to realize that in and of ourselves, we, we have no, we're bankrupt. We have no ability to imitate them. And usually the harder we try, the more that we fail. Okay. okay. Yes, sir. But that's sure. part of it, though, right? I mean, that's part of it. Otherwise, we're... Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's point, it, the life of Christ, when we look at it, points to the fact that we can't live the life of Christ. See what I mean? Yeah, so when I see the way he speaks, when I see the way he acts, uh, I'm seeing a, a perfect human being. And so in that way, you ever been around someone who's like, like every time you're around them, you feel worse about yourself? He's like, man, I can never be like he is. I can never be like she is, you know? So you might even like them, but at the same time, you don't like them because, geez, they always make you feel like you're, like, like you're that tall compared to them. <laughs> well, when you, when you compare yourself to Christ, you're like, yeah, you, you suck. Like, man, I can, never, I can never be that. So in that way, his life becomes kind of this unspoken law, if you will, pointing to the fact that we can't. We won't, we can't, we never would be like that. So, yes, sir. Yeah, it's a, God isn't kidding when he says, be perfect. Yeah, be holy. He's not like, he doesn't say, I know you can't, but I'm going to say it anyway. He knows like, no, this, I mean, He's strictly serious when he says that. And that's why when that kind of law hits us, where does it leave us? Dead. Yeah. It leaves us dead. There's, it's like, no way. So, yeah, God isn't, God isn't sort of winking. He isn't kidding around. I mean, he's, he's dead serious, literally dead serious when he says this. In order that he might drive us to the point of, of death. Because... Dead people are God's best materials to work with. And you see that in the life of Christ, right? Lazarus come forth. He raises the widow's son at Nain. Uh, the less we can offer God, the more he can do with us. <laughs> That's the general rule. Yeah, so, so the deader we are, the more we're the perfect material for God, which gets back to how God created everything. He created everything ex nihilo from nothing. And so as, uh, if you ever want to read something really good by Martin Luther, read his very short commentary on the Magnificat, on Mary's song. Because there he delves into all of this, how, how God, by creating everything out of nothing, shows us the way that he continues to work in our lives. That's why so often our lives hurt, because God is bringing us down to nothing so that from that nothing he can recreate us. And then he can continue this process all through, all through our lives. 
It's also in that commentary, by the way. I've got to throw this out there because I love this. Luther uses one of his, my favorite of, of, his, of his quotes. He says that the farther we are from God, the farther below God we are, the better he can see us. It's, it's, such, it's just a great image. I mean, we want to, when we want to see something well, we bring it close, right? Luther said, no, the farther away you are, the better he can see you. What he's talking about is how God will bring us low. He's in the highest heavens, and he's, going, he's bringing us low so he can see us better. What we're always trying to do is climb the ladder, right? We're climbing the ladder of holiness. We're climbing the ladder of piety, going up those rungs. We think we're getting, the better we get, the more holier we get, the more sanctified we get, the closer we'll get to God. It doesn't work that way. The higher we lift ourselves up, the, the, the less God is able to see us clearly. So he's always kind of pushing us down so he can have a 20-20 vision on us. Okay, in our last few minutes before 11.30, I want to look at a couple more examples of this way in which Christ is appearing in the Old Testament. We've spent enough time on the messenger, but there's also other ways that he does this. So if you look at Oh, what's a good one to look at? Let's, let's turn to Genesis 15. We'll look at three, quickly at three different episodes. Genesis 15, uh, we just covered this in uh, last weekend. If, you're, if you ever listen to 40 Minutes in the Old Testament, there's a, we had a lost episode. It was episode 21 and we, where we talked about Genesis 15, and the, the recording got messed up, and so it's been the lost episode. So we recorded it re-recorded it last weekend, and we covered Genesis 15. And one of the things I love about this, there's so much richness here, but one of the things I like about it is how God appears. So Genesis 15 starts out this way. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. All right? When you think the word of the Lord coming to someone, usually I think most people think what happened. God did what? Spoke. Spoke. I mean, that's what words are, right? If a word comes to someone, you think they heard something. So we think, okay, so we, so we heard something. But this is a vision. The word of the Lord's coming in a vision. And then you read on, and you come to, where is it at here? Verse 5. So we have this give and take between the word of the Lord and Abram. Get down to verse 5, and he, that is the word, took him outside and said, now look at the heavens. This is, not a, this is not some sort of spoken word. I mean, words don't take people outside. That's not the way words work. This is a word that is visible. It's a word that's tangible. So this is, you can see it as kind of a synonymous with the messenger of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And it isn't just here. Flip ahead to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 3, Samuel's a little guy, he's, uh, he's living there with Eli and his sons at the, at the tabernacle, and Samuel's about to have his first encounter with God. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and it says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. So notice we have word and vision once more. And then it goes on to say that Samuel keeps hearing this voice calling to him. And he thinks it's Eli, right? He comes running to Eli. He's like, yeah, what'd you need? He's like, nothing. Go back to bed. Quit waking me up, kid. And this happens over and over until finally Eli wises up. And he's like, oh, okay, God's 
evidently talking to him. So he says, go back to bed, and the next time that you hear a voice, don't wake me up. Just say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Which I think is, coming from Eli, is actually one of the best prayers in, you know, in the scriptures, right? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So uh, you go down to verse 10. This happens again. And verse 10 says, Then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. So the word of the Lord came, was calling to him, and we find out now that this is actually the Lord who's coming and standing. Same as Exodus 3. It's the Lord, it's the word of the Lord, and yet this is a word which stands and speaks. This is also a word that can touch, because when you flip ahead to the book of Jeremiah, What's more, you have, a, you have a young guy who is called into the prophetic office, much like Samuel. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord, this is all the same in the Hebrew, by the way. It's the Devar Yahweh, the word of the Lord, came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then Jeremiah He's like, I'm just a kid. I can't do this. God says, it's okay. I've got this. And then verse 9, then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, I put my words in your mouth. It's the same parallel situation here. You've got Samuel, young, the word of the Lord comes, the Lord comes, stands, speaks. In this case, the word of the Lord comes, the Lord comes, stands, and touches. Words don't touch at least not in the way that we usually think of them. Words are just heard, but this is a different sort of word. This is a, this is a tangible, visible, I won't say physical, but it has a physicality to it, you know, that's coming and, and speaking to him. Okay, now put all this together with John chapter 1. All right? You know, you know where I was going. You, you know exactly the direction this was going. But there's a twist. There's a twist here. And I had to get my, my phone to, uh, to read you something that you'll see the twist. I'll get to it in just a second. Now, obviously, when John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning, in RK, was the, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, he expects us to read this in light of the Old Testament. Right? Not just Genesis 1, because that's where he starts, in the beginning, but also these other word sorts of stories, like we just looked at with Jeremiah, or with Samuel, or with Abram. The word of the Lord was always coming to his people, appearing to them, sometimes touching them, sometimes leading them outside, but nevertheless, this word wasn't just something audible, wasn't just an ear thing, it was an eye thing as well. And then he goes on to verse 14, and what does the word do? The word becomes flesh, so it takes on our human nature, and then does what? Dwells among us, and the Greek for dwell is more literally tabernacles, pitches his tent among us. Now what you might not realize is that what John is doing here is he's not only drawing upon the whole tabernacle imagery, and the whole word imagery, but he's also imitating what we find in some other Jewish writings. So 
don't know how familiar you are with the, uh, the Apocrypha. You know, the Catholics have a longer Bible. <laughs> so you, you, they've got all the Apocrypha in there. You've got the first and second Maccabees. You've got uh, Bell and the Dragon. You've got all these other stories. One of, the, one of the books in there is called Sirach, or The Wisdom of Jesus Ben Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus is in the name. All the same book, different titles. Well, in chapter 24 of Sirach, let me find my, uh, my passage here. Let me read this to you. So this is wisdom that we encountered back in Proverbs, right? Who was speaking a soliloquy, just talking. So this is wisdom speaking in Sirach. And this is, about, this is written about uh, two centuries before John writes his gospel. A well-known text among the Jews. Wisdom says, uh, among all these, he's talking about how he was looking for a place to, to rest. He says, among all these places, when, all, when over the heavens and the earth, among all these I sought a resting place, wisdom says, in whose territory should I abide? Then the creator of all things gave me a command, and my creator chose the place for my tent. He said, tent yourself, make your tent, pitch your tent in Jacob, and in Israel receive your inheritance. Now the Greek that's used there for pitch your tent or make your tent is the same Greek that we have in John chapter 1, verse 14. So John is drawing not only on these word traditions in the Old Testament, but he's also echoing what was said in, in Sirach, this well-known Jewish literature about how wisdom, not the word, but wisdom was looking for a place to dwell. And so God finally said, hey, wisdom, why don't you tabernacle among Israel. Why don't you pitch your tent among Israel? And so John, who I know would have known this particular text, he draws on that same kind of language, but instead of talking about it, wisdom, he talks about the word who pitches his tent among us after he has taken on human flesh. And he then reveals his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So you can kind of see how these, the Old Testament and the, the, the other Jewish writings are coalescing together to give us a, a picture of exactly who Christ is. Because think of it, you're a first century Jew, you're John, for instance, or you're Matthew, and you're, you're, you're trying to communicate as best you can what it means that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God, one who is the same nature of God. How are you gonna, how are you gonna communicate that? Well, you're gonna communicate that hopefully in a way that is biblically sound, but also in a way that people can, can understand, right? And so maybe you're going to draw on Sirach and that language of tabernacling or tenting in order to get across exactly what it means to speak about God becoming incarnate. I mean, we're, we have 20 centuries of tradition and teaching behind us. Well, you're in the first century. You don't have that. You've got to find ways to communicate with your fellow Jews about what this, exactly what this means. And that's what John does here. He draws upon the, the wisdom traditions, the word traditions, in order to communicate exactly who Christ is for us. And, of course, not only that is in the background, but the whole tabernacle, which we will get to this afternoon or this evening, but that's part of what's going on here, too, with, with John. 